0: Evening, everyone. Thank you, Kat. Tonight, as Kat has said, we're starting this new series, uh, Paradoxology, uh, which when you type it, gets underlined in red <laughs> because it's not a real word. Uh, and so whenever you hear it or see it, can I ask you what thoughts come to mind? What, what do you think this means or what made it mean? So bit of engagement, turn around to the person beside you and just tell them what you think that word means. Go for it. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I'm not going to get any feedback this, this day, but, it, but it's a word that is kind of made up of two words, paradox and doxology. And, and so let me, let me break that down. A paradox consists of true statements that lead to an apparent or real contradiction in logic. So, for example, how, how do you reconcile these two statements that I'm going to say? The boy has had three birthdays. The boy is 13 years old. How, how do you reconcile those? Yeah, exactly. Those statements do appear contradictory. They don't make sense. But once you discover that the boy's birthday is 29th of February, then the contradiction disappears. A paradox is a statement or a proposition that seems self-contradictory or even absurd, but in reality, it expresses a possible truth. Let let me give you some more examples of, of simple paradoxes. The only constant is change, okay? It's a paradox. Or the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Or whenever, apparently, a paradox or the idea of paradox is being taught to kids. Here's just a simple phrase that is used. Jumbo shrimp. Okay. <laughs> Jumbo shrimp. Now many paradoxes like those are relatively easy to explain. You know, you've got to be cruel to be kind. Paradox. a paradox. But, but you can kind of understand what is... What it's meant by it. Yep. However, the paradoxes that often come to light whenever we start thinking about God are not so easy to resolve. So for example, how can God be so close and yet often seem so far away? How can Jesus' death? bring life? How can Jesus be fully human and fully divine? It's a paradox. How can a God who tells us to love our enemies ordain the wiping out of a whole generation? Or command genocide? How does a God who needs nothing demand everything. And all of those are kind of like good questions to ask. They're very honest questions. They're real questions. And some people might think, but hang on a wee minute, is this not quite dangerous? Are you not letting the side down by bringing these questions out into the open, these paradoxes? Does raising them not create in some people's minds doubt? Are you not in danger of kind of destabilizing people's faith by raising those kind of paradoxes? Maybe even destroying faith? Well, I don't think so. I actually reckon it's vital that we bring those questions into the open. It's okay to struggle with mystery. It's healthy to recognize the tensions. In fact, I believe it is the very paradoxes of scripture that help us to discover so much more about the true nature and character of God. Questions, and let me add, paradoxes take us on an adventure of discovery. Let me give you another definition of paradox. A situation, a person, or a thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. And and so my, my hope and prayer during and for this series is that by wrestling with many of the paradoxes concerning God, that actually by acknowledging them and grappling with them, rather than trying to push them away, that we will actually discover through doing this through going on this journey, we'll actually discover a more vibrant faith that is deepened, that is brought to even greater life, and as a result, we will worship. As someone has said, worry and worship, doubt and devotion frequently go hand in hand in Scripture. And so this this series, I hope, will actually encourage us to worship that as we engage with these paradoxes, and there are many of them, that as we engage with them, we will lift our hearts and we will lift our voices in praise because that takes me to the second word, doxology. What is a doxology? It is an expression of praise, paradoxology, as we grapple with these, that it will inspire us to praise. I wanna show you a a short clip to introduce this series further. Matt's gonna switch us over uh, the screens because I want you to know where this idea came from because I didn't come up with this word. Uh, I'm not that clever and I didn't come up with this kind of series either. Uh, I, I came across it recently. So let's watch this video to kind of introduce it further and explain a little more. Thanks,
1: guys. I've always struggled to understand God. As a child, I remember sitting on a shrunken plastic chair with my hand in the air and my toes hovering above the floor. Who made God, miss? Is God bigger than the universe? Why does God tell Abraham to kill his son? Will he tell me to hit my mate? If I do hit my mate, then isn't it really God's fault? Because he's in charge of the universe. Paradoxes, mysteries, conundrums, The Christian faith is full of them. My Sunday school teacher always had an answer. If we could understand God, then we would be God. God works in mysterious ways. Don't be awkward, get on with your coloring. One of the paradoxes of faith is that years of living the Christian life and studying the Bible do not give us immunity from those bothersome questions. The more I know, the more I know I don't know. So I still struggle with those same questions I had when I was six years old. Where is God? What is he really like? Does God really care? Sometimes I sit in a study surrounded by books or in a church service surrounded by worshipers or in a hospital surrounded by tragedy and those questions still bother me. My Sunday school teachers, easy answers are no help at all. I need more than an easy answer, a handy proof text or a trivial distraction our Bible heroes didn't archive their difficult questions or sweep them under the carpet. Moses asked, where is God? David demanded, why God? Habakkuk complained, really God? Job debated, does God really care? Paradoxes, mysteries, conundrums, all dared to be brought out into the open, to God himself. So what I want to ask is, what if we have been going about this all wrong? What if we've settled for neatly packaged simplistic answers instead of seeking out the deep and rich realities of our faith? What if it is actually in the difficult parts of the Bible that God is most clearly revealed? What if it is in and through our struggles and doubts that we learn the meaning of a true relationship with God? What if this ancient faith we call Christianity has survived so long, not in spite of, but precisely because of its apparent contradictions? What if Christianity was never meant to be simple? So
0: during this uh, series, we're we're gonna explore a number of paradoxes concerning God. And the way we're gonna do it and the way this book does it is by kind of tying them in and and locating them alongside a a character in scripture. So for example, tonight, as Cadiz said, we're gonna examine this paradox Of a God who does need nothing and yet demands everything. And we're going to use Abraham's story to confront this paradox. Let let me read you some verses from uh, Psalm 50 to start. "I, I have no need, says God, of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I, were hungry, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. You see, the Bible makes it really clear that God needs nothing from us. Paul, writing in the New Testament, or Paul explains in the New Testament in the book of Acts, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And the technical term that that captures this idea is this. Which, according to uh, J.I. Packer in, in his great book, Concise Theology, means that God has life in himself and draws unending energy from himself. Or as people used to say, God is God all by himself. God is God all by himself. He needs nothing. And yet, he demands everything. So why does a God who is all-powerful, all-sufficient, self-sufficient, ask for, look for, costly worship, sacrificial service? Why does God ask for that? And this impacts and affects kind of life on the ground in the everyday for many Christians. This isn't just about kind of trying to get our heads around this. Think for a moment about our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church who make daily choices and sacrifices in order to follow and worship God, where discipleship costs them nearly everything, who are often faced with decisions that threaten their very lives or those of their families and friends. Why does worship in God who needs nothing, costs so much to those who love him. Why would God demand such outrageous commitment? Let's bring this closer to home. A bit up close and personal. What about the person, maybe sitting here this evening, who's been hurt? Or has been let down? or has been betrayed, or has been abused by someone else. And what does God ask them to do? What does God demand they offer? Forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, we pray, as we forgive those who sin against us. Every day Christians face what seem like impossible situations, situations in which God seems to invite them to take the hardest path, the road that's less travelled, the toughest route, the most testing route, the narrow road. Why? Does God need us to prove that we love Him? Does God want to see how much we can take before we break? Does God simply want more? Is God greedy? The God who needs nothing yet asks for everything, paradox. And this paradox is, is highlighted and heightened head on very early in scripture in the story of Abraham. And particularly in that incident which many people see and perceive as a dark episode in biblical history. Whenever Abraham, as the video referred, whenever Abraham is asked to participate in child sacrifice, in the name of devotion to God, And Abraham is a key figure in the Old Testament. His story is the first in-depth biography that we come to in the Bible. Genesis 10 and 11 gives us a pretty detailed account of his family tree. But after we hear about who begot who, or begat who, or begat whom, whatever is the technical term, whenever we hear that over and over again in Genesis 11, there's all of a sudden an abrupt stop because Abraham's wife, Sarah, to quote Genesis 11:30, is childless." Why? It says, "Because she's unable to conceive. And in that culture where your identity was defined by your ancestors and by your descendants, this was a heavy burden to bear. This came with a sense of shame in that culture. And so for Abram and Sarah, their their future looked bleak. And then God dramatically steps in and he becomes intimately involved. The God of creation becomes the God of covenant who establishes a relationship with Abram. And God comes to this man and he calls him to up sticks and leave. Go from your country, says God to a new land and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And this is incredible. must have been scary to hear this from God, but exciting. And then this God who created the stars in Genesis chapter one, asks Abraham to step outside his tent and count the stars in Genesis chapter 15. And then he proceeds to tell Abraham that your descendants will outnumber the lights in the night sky. This obviously sounds to Abraham and Sarah, who's childless and can't conceive. This sounds impossible, laughable. But God's plans and promises do come to pass and a son is eventually born to this elderly couple. And as a result, to quote one writer, God turns mourning into dancing and obscurity into fame, shame into glory, tragedy into triumph, and barrenness into a family that he promises will expand to stellar proportions. And then you fast forward the story and you discover that Sarah and Abraham, now renamed, are finally en route to the new promised land along with their miracle son, Isaac bit of a nightmare, becomes a bit of a fairy tale. That is if you end the story there. But the reality is we're only partway through the narrative. Because although God gives the impossible beyond this elderly couple's wildest dreams, he then demands the impossible. And here we confront the painful paradox and we need to, we must confront it in order to see and to order, in order to understand God properly and more clearly and fully. You see, it's easier, it's easier to trust God when your dreams are coming true. When his actions fit with our aspirations, but when they don't, then the challenge kicks in. Then our worship is placed under the spotlight and under the microscope. Then we're forced to check whether we're worshiping a designer God who meets our spec and our expectations, or whether we're actually worshiping the one true God who constantly surprises us. And maybe this is why paradoxes are so critical, because they save us from worshiping a false God, a God of our own desires and our own construct. Because as this story progresses, we discover that the God of Abraham is also a dream-shattering God. A dream-shattering God. And then the discomfort and the confusion now sets in as you read the story. God doesn't always give fame and fortune and fertility. As lots of people know all too well. And so out of the blue, God makes an apparently ridiculous demand. Now comes the paradox hidden in plain sight that leaves us with far more questions than answers. Because having given Abraham so much, now God demands it back. Take your son, Abraham, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Are you serious, God? How come a God who needs nothing demands the impossible? What is this God really like? And what does it mean for us in the here and now? What does practical faith in this God involve? Or what might it involve for you and I? This command of God effectively conveys three death sentences. Innocent Isaac will be killed, but so will Abraham's aspirations and so will Sarah's maternal pride and joy. Three death sentences. The God who gives a precious gift to an elderly couple's now about to snatch it back. It's disturbing. It's shocking if we're honest. Or at best, it seems petty. When God asked Abraham to kind of up sticks and leave his country, he didn't really have an awful lot to lose. This was the chance of a new adventure, a new start, a new location. Surely it's worth taking this risk. Surely it is worth going. But when God asks for a child sacrifice, Abraham has everything to lose. Lifting that knife to sacrifice his son also meant surrendering his future, surrendering his destiny, surrendering his hopes. And God, for many people, doesn't come across too good. Doesn't come across too great. No wonder the late, imminent, anti-theist Christopher Hitchens used this story from Genesis to argue his case God is not great. God is not great. Like, what sort of God, asks Christopher Hitchens, asks a father to kill his young son? Who would want to follow a monster like that? And then the contradictions. Flood into our minds, or at least they should. They do for me, thick and fast. Is the God who forbids murder really telling Abraham to kill his son? Really? Is the God that expressly forbids child sacrifice now demanding the blood of an innocent boy? Are all the promises that God gave to Abraham revoked? When God asks the impossible, what are the faithful to do? Is faith in God ultimately irrational? Now, as we consider those paradoxes, those mysteries, we need to acknowledge, and and, and this is where I need you to stick with me here, but we need to acknowledge as we wrestle with this and struggle with this and grapple with this, that Abraham's faith here is pivotal because in Romans 4 when Paul is writing about Abraham he describes him as the father of faith plus we're also told that Abraham and here, here's this phrase that we know he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness now we're not only told that by Paul in Romans chapter 4 we're actually told that in the star gazing incident in Genesis 15 So it was because in a sense of Abraham's faith that he was promised a son and it was also because of his faith that he was prepared to go through with God's ridiculous demand. So what kind of faith is Abraham a father of? Is it blind faith? Is it unquestionable faith? What sort of faith is this that Abraham is the father of? Many people have described faith as believing what you know isn't true. Isn't that what Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion says? He dismisses faith as the process of non-thinking. But the Bible refutes this. Based on Abraham's story, Chris Kondiah says in his book, that we can establish three things based on Abraham's story. We can establish three things about the nature of true faith. The first is this. Here, Here are the three of them together. Faith, first of all, it's not a leap in the dark. The Bible is full of testimonials that present reasons for trusting God. The step of faith is, to a very large extent, an informed decision, which might sound like another paradox. But based on gathered evidence, based on previous experience, we, Abraham, moved forward, stepped out. Abraham had his eyes wide open when he decided to lead Isaac up Mount Moriah. He had gathered evidence that this God would fulfill his promises He had already experienced the miracle of God's provision. Abraham had seen that God could bring dead things to life, like his wife's womb. He knew his future was safer, safer in God's hands. So yes, although this was immensely challenging, this was not irrational on Abraham's part. To keep trusting in God was not, is not always some kind of leap in the dark or into the unknown. Secondly, Abraham's faith is set in the context of relationship. You see, God knew Abraham, but Abraham knew God. Abraham knew firsthand of God's power, God's ability to intervene in circumstances. He knew firsthand about God's kindness, God's patience with him. I mean, we know the story of Abraham. He had gone off the rails a number of times. He had lied. He had said on one occasion Sarah was a sister. I mean, Abraham knew. Abraham had proved that God was patient with him, that God was kind that God had unusual ways of working. He had learnt to trust that God. And so even though this demand seemed strange, Abraham knew God well enough to dare to trust him. Faith is set in the context of a relationship. And thirdly, it's not about disengaging your brain. It's not about bypassing your critical faculties. It's not an empty thing. It's actually a reasoned thing. It's an engagement of our critical faculties. Abraham had a three-day journey to the top of Mount Moriah. He had plenty of time to think. And it seems his conclusion was that God had the authority to demand the impossible because he had the power to perform the impossible. And so for Abraham, he was going to, Keep trusting in God's love. Keep trusting in God's faithfulness. And therefore, he was going to obey. He was going to carry out this extreme demand. He engaged with a God he knew. And based on previous experience. And yes, this was a bizarre request. But I'm going to trust. I've reasoned to trust. And so faith in God is not unreasonable. It's not the process of non-thinking. It's based on evidence. It's based on the character of God. It's based on our experience of God. It's based on our experience of God and other people's lives. But let's go back to the story because although what I've just said may be right regarding faith, we're still left with the question. It's a nagging question, but why did God demand so much of Abraham in the first place? Especially when it turns out that just as Abraham is about to follow through on his demand, when his son is tied down, when the knife is raised, God then intervenes and tells him to stop. Like what was the point? Why submit Abraham to all that emotional turmoil? Only, in a sense, to let him off the hook at the last minute. It is hard to fully understand. It is hard to get our heads around. But as Abraham is confronted with this disturbing dilemma, he chooses to reflect and demonstrate total commitment in God because he still believed right up to that last moment. He still believed. God, you're trustworthy. God, you're trustworthy. Have confidence in your character. You see, in Hebrews, we read that Abraham actually reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Because of this unrelenting trust that Abraham somehow had in his head and in his heart that God would return Isaac to him, he led his son up that mountain because he had confidence in God's character. He had a vision for the future. And as well as that, you see, God knew, and and this is where we're really getting to the heart of this. But alongside this, God knew that via this experience, now this is hard, I know, that via this experience and via this test and via this challenge, Abraham would discover and know an even greater intimacy than he knew before. You see, God knows that when we are prepared To lose everything, we find everything. Isn't that what Jesus said? Whoever loses their life for me will find it. The paradoxes just keep coming. God needs nothing but demands everything. Yes, it's a paradox, but it makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because rising to those demands being obedient to those demands, being obedient to what God asks of us, God knows it will intensify our faith. It will transform our lives. It will ignite our worship. And so God continues to make demands of us. Huge demands of us. Every single Christian in this room is required to make a daily sacrifice. God needs nothing, but asks of every one of us who follow Jesus to make a daily sacrifice. To deny yourselves, to pick up your cross daily, and follow hard after Jesus. God doesn't need us to do that but he knows that it will take us deeper, that it will lead us to life in all its fullness. Plus, and we must never forget this. I'm nearly done. Whenever God asks us to sacrifice so much, it's important we recall that he sacrificed everything for us. Because in echoes of Abraham's story, he was the father who gave a son. He was the dad who gave his only son, the son whom he loved, and he watched him climb a lonely hill. He knew that he would be sacrificed for the sake of the world. And that was and is and forever will be the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. And therefore we know from experience, we know based on his character that anything God asks of us, anything that God asks us to do for him should never be taken in isolation. It's gotta always be understood in the context of love. God needs nothing. Demands everything. It's a paradox. But it's true. And if the God we believe in never asks the impossible. Or doesn't demand everything. Then based on God's word, based on Abraham's story. There's a real danger that we're not worshipping the true God at all but a substitute, imitation, knockoff, lowercase, God. God needs nothing, demands everything. Sounds illogical, sounds unreasonable, sounds contradictory, sounds paradoxical, but it makes perfect sense when you learn to trust in the character of God.